previously on Electric Boogaloo. So I, I kind of don't want to deny my my maternal instinct. <laughs> Welcome to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. Today we'll be covering Chapter 1 of A Game of Thrones. We'll be hearing from Dr. Chad Carmichael, philosopher, Dr. Lisa Woolfork, who is a professor of English literature, and Dr. Jamie Smith, who is an expert on literary theory. I found all three of these conversations fascinating. I had to include all three. We'll also check in with Steve, who has done his first viewing ever of any Game of Thrones episode. He and I will be talking about Winter is Coming. If you'd like to follow along with Steve, we'll be covering one episode per week until we get to the end of Season 1. Then we'll cover the final two episodes together in a single finale podcast. Check out baldmove.com to see what else is going on. I recommend the club. Feedback can be sent to book at baldmove.com. Now here is Professor Chad Carmichael. Sure. Foreshadowing and things like yeah. that. Yeah. You know, I, I have taught introduction to philosophy through film before. And I feel like when you can focus on the story and let the academic stuff be sort of incidental, I feel like people interact with the academic stuff deep, more deeply than the other mm-hmm. ones would have. Mm-hmm. And if you just do academic, I don't think it works as well. Hey, let me ask you an unrelated question since you said film. So I was just talking, I just did this rewatch with my friend. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was somewhat disappointed with the way that the show ended. Yeah. But my sense of it was like, that basically it's like, I feel about the same way I feel about like the way that Godfather ended. It's like, it doesn't lessen my enjoyment of Godfather 1 and 2. Yeah. The Godfather 3 did, just didn't feel of a piece. Right. Do you? How do you feel about Godfather 3? I don't have a very serious relationship with those movies. Uh, I guess, like everybody, I recognize the third one was sort of not really in the same ballpark as the first two. The first two are are great, and the third does one's it lessen your enjoyment of no. the first two to know that Godfather Three exists in the world? No, it really doesn't. And I would say the same thing about the you know the Star Wars films. It's like you know the good ones are four and five, uh, in my opinion, and um, you know the all the other ones I could kind of take them or leave them at this point. And I love, I will love Star Wars episodes four and five until I die. Uh, it does not matter what they do with Star Wars. It can't, it can't take it away from me. All right. Shall we get going? Sure. Okay. Dr. Chad Carmichael, I know you as a serious man. Is that right? Yes. You, <laughs> you also know me as an unserious man. <laughs> 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 well, our nickname for you and your wife back when we were in, in our college days, we called you the Muppets. <laughs> that's, that's how unserious we thought of you. <laughs> I don't really know if I've ever heard that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you guys. In fact, I think still when we write your anniversary on, on our calendar, it's the Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I like that. I mean, I, I've known you to be playful, but... When I think of you in academic settings, because I know you're a serious philosopher, mm. I think of you as a very serious man. All right. Well, I'll take it. Yeah. So you'll take it. So does that mean that you're okay with it, or does that give you a sense of pride? 
<laughs> well, I, I, I feel uh, it's a nice thing for you to say about me. Um, I, w- I don't think of myself that way. I, I do care to make a contribution um, in philosophy, and I think it's very difficult to make a contribution. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess I don't take it lightly when I'm trying to publish something or something like that. You know, I want to publish things that are that are good and worth reading and not just um, not just climb the ladder, as it were. Well, okay, that, uh, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. Now, today we'll do something easier than philosophy, I think. And that is we're just rereading Bran's first chapter, the first chapter one, chapter one of A Game of Thrones, uh, yep. which which I think is super fun. And yet, when I was reading through this, it felt very serious. I felt like I, I can't help but compare these first pages to the first pages of Tolkien, which, as you remember, because I know you're a big Tolkien nerd as well, it's not. It's less than serious. He eases into the the magnitude of the story. Uh, it's very young yes. adult fiction, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, this feels more serious. Yeah, there's a tremendous amount of a very darkly tinged foreshadowing in this first chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. It, whereas in in Lord of the Rings, uh, your first chapter is about you know he's planning his birthday party. There's a lot of joking <laughs> around. <laughs> there's a lot of silliness, right? And, and fact, I don't. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, so much so, the only person that laughs in this first chapter is Theon. <laughs> Yeah, and he and he and the laughter is really meant to make you feel that Theon is kind of a repulsive character. Yeah, he's called an ass, and right. well, he's know. laughing about a guy's kicking a guy's head that just got removed from, from the guy's <laughs> body. So, yeah, Theon is uh-huh. kind of presented as this like this is the, this is not the occasion, and here you are, you're just a you're a buffoon or you're you're sadistic or something, but the laughter is out of place. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, you know that it's a good contrast. It's like in Lord of the Rings, there's laughter and a birthday party, and in this book, there is laughter and a beheading. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that's <laughs> that's a good contrast, and the and the laughter is kind of gross, you know. In this context, it is. Yeah. All right. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a quick synopsis of the chapter, and uh, then we can fill in any gaps that I've created in my synopsis. Okay, so we're introduced to a lot of these main characters for the very first time. This is a Bran point of view chapter. Bran is on on his way to a beheading, and he's with a a party of writers, including his father, who he calls his Lord Father. And they go out to this holdfast in the hills, and they cut down this guy who's been, I don't know, freezing up on a wall or something and they interrogate him a little bit and then they cut off his head and Bran is supposed to sort of man up and just watch this whole thing go down and then they ride home and on their way home they talk a little bit about the beheading and John and Rob ride forward and discover a dead direwolf, which is like this giant beast. And it seems as if the direwolf has kind of fallen upon a, a stag or something because there's a shattered antler in the neck of the beast. And Rob has discovered puppies. 
and they're going to kill the puppies. And then John speaks up and says, uh, there's five of them. It's your house sigil. This is a dire wolf. And so you have five trueborn children. Each of your children should raise one of these puppies. And Bran notices that in saving the puppies, John has excluded himself because John is not a trueborn son of Ned Stark. And uh, Ned concedes to allow the puppies to be raised by his children. John finds a puppy that uh, he ends up claiming as his own. And that's that's kind of it. That's, that's, that's it. the chapter. Yeah. A lot of foreshadowing, a lot of... Uh, he sort of encapsulates each of these guys with little pieces of information that really tell you something about what they're like and where they're headed. Yeah, we talk a little bit about Theon gets introduced as someone who's less than serious, right? Yeah, just a, a little bit off-putting in his sort of moral approach to things, and mm. and that fits with what we find later about him. It's interesting that there's there's seemingly there's a big deal placed on the internal or tribal morality of the Starks. Yeah. There's a right way to do things, and there's a wrong way to do things. Yes. And it's very important that they do things the right way. Theon <laughs> doesn't really care about that kind of stuff. Yeah. But everyone else really cares. Everyone really cares. that, Like, no, if you're a deserter, this is your fate. And if you're watching the beheading, here's what you should do. You don't look away. If you are the person swinging the sword, you have to say these words. You've got to look the man in the eye. Uh, you swing the sword yourself. And uh, everyone, everyone's very serious about this tribal ethic, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Or tribal way of life or something. Well, I detect that – I thought this might be interesting to you as a historian that I, I, I detect that there's a certain idealization of the first men in some of this. Uh Say more about that. Uh, that well, I mean, I, I you can fill me in here, but I, I feel as if I can't remember the details, but I feel as if I've read enough about the background of this universe to know that the first men were not all great heroes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were they they had, I think, committed some kind of genocide against the first. Yeah, the, uh, the children the of the, the, for the children yeah. of the forest, yeah. yeah. And uh in various ways were brutal people. There there may have been blood sacrifices and things of this nature. Yeah. Um and and I I think I see in Ned a, a person who has sort of idealized that history. Huh. Sort of to his own ends, you know. Sure. The word that most came to mind to me was syncretism. Mm -hmm. um, because Ned seems to be very much a creature of the North, right? He's very proudly claims that the blood of the first men runs through our veins. Yeah. And this is why I have to swing the sword. And yet he's doing it in the name of Robert Baratheon, who's the king in the South. Mm -hmm. And he's using a Valerian steel sword, which, you know, this is not a, a tool of the first men. And he's keeping the king's justice, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like... There's something about Ned that he, he really does sort of reach back to this ancient people, and yet he knows that he's working within a system that would have been really foreign to these first men. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so even maybe, I mean, even maybe he's idealizing the Starks and the history of the Starks. Yeah, uh, more than anything else. Sure. Okay, I, I thought it was interesting that you learn a lot in this chapter about John. You learn a lot about Rob, about uh, Ned. I don't feel, and I wonder if you agree with this, but I don't feel that you learn almost anything about Bran. You learn that he's a kid. You learn he's a little, mm. a little un, underdeveloped. Uh, maybe he has never been out with the boys. He, he's seven, so he's pretty little. Other than that, you don't learn a lot about him. I feel like you learn a lot more in the next chapter about him, which, as I recall, is the one where where he's climbing all over the place. It's it very well could be. My sense is that this is a kid being groomed for leadership. Yeah. I mean, he's not even 10 years old yet. And he's watching the beheading. And then the question is, why? Why is it important? Why is it important for Bran to know why Ned has to look him in the eye and talk to him and swing the sword himself? This is not something that you would would normally force a, a kid to do. And yet, you almost get the the sense that John, like at one point, it says John's fourteen years old, an old hand at justice, right? Yeah, right? So you get the sense that no, these boys are being groomed for something that's greater than mm-hmm. you know their own childhood. Yeah, you know, so great that it may be worth sacrificing elements of their childhood to grow them up fast or something. Mm-hmm. Um. Maybe it tells me more about Bran's context than it does to tell me about Bran. Yeah, yeah. All right, guest choice. You get to choose to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or we can just climb the ladder of chaos together. Chad. I, I want to talk about, I thought the most interesting part of the chapter was the argument or the discussion that the characters had about whether the man who was who was killed, the man who was executed, mm-hmm. whether he died well. Yeah, okay. Um, do you want me to read the uh, just that little little section? Sure. Okay. Uh, I've got it right here. The deserter died bravely, Rob said. He was big and broad and growing every day, with his mother's coloring, the fair skin, red-brown hair, blue eyes of the Tullys of River Run. He had courage at the least. No, John said quietly. It was not courage. This one was dead of fear. You could see it in his eyes, Stark. John's eyes were gray, so dark they almost seemed black, but there was little they did not see. He was of an age with Rob, but they did not look alike. John was slender where Rob was muscular, dark where Rob was fair. Graceful and quick, where his half-brother was strong and fast. Rob was not impressed. The others take his eyes, he swore. He died well. Race you to the bridge? (laughs) (laughs) That's the best part of the chapter, is that little line from Rob. The others take his eyes. (laughs) (laughs) He died well. And this is really, to me, very revealing about Rob. I mean, um, he... He is blinded by what he wants, how he wants things to be. And you see that here. Oh, interesting. And and that's the way he gets himself into trouble later. Oh, interesting. Okay, so I took this to mean, but I like your interpretation better. I took this to mean 
that Rob is kind of saying the kinds of things he's heard adults say. And he's kind of trying on lordship. Yeah. Maybe this is something he's heard Ned say before or some adult say before. And he thinks that, you know, this is kind of a a stoic, manly thing to say about someone who just got their head lopped off or something. Yeah. Well, that might be true as well. Uh, I think here's what we know about this guy. Yeah. 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 G- his name's Garrett. He's past 50. He uh, has over 40 years on the wall. Yeah, frostbitten to show it, right? Yeah, right? He's lost both both of his ears, his finger, I think a couple of his toes. Um, he is a tough guy. And the his desertion was uh, shocking to Mormont, right? Uh-huh. Uh, they did not expect this guy to desert. And we find out in Chapter 2 from Ned... Uh, I, th- I think Ned says this, quote, the poor man was half mad. Something had put fear in him so deep right. that my words could not reach him. Uh-huh. So so Ned couldn't even talk to the guy. He was so out of it. Hmm. And uh, clearly, John's right when John says that his you could see it in his eyes that he was dead of fear. John right. is see- seeing something real. And Brand tells us there's 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 very little that John's eyes don't see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, does, this is not Rob's gift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that that's true. I think also what I see is a suggestion that John is a person who will look reality right in the face and accept it and face it with self sacrifice. Huh, yeah, right. Sure. I, I mean, that's that's definitely a feeling you get uh-huh. out of this chapter. Whereas Rob is like. Oh, never mind, John. This is the way it is. Let's have a race. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a real contrast there, I think. And I mean, it's funny because I don't, you know, I I sort of like Rob in a way for it. I I like that optimism Uh and and, and that kind of spirit is, is, you know, there's something charismatic about that spirit. But but John has a kind of substance that you see. I think you're right. And I think that this, this chapter does what it lacks in explaining about Bran. You hear, you learn a lot about John, I think in this chapter. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it's in contrast to Theon and it's in contrast to Rob. And you get the, you get the sense that, okay, so John's 14. He's an old hand at justice. And he's been looking at these men's eyes when he sees them beheaded. I don't know how often this happens. Like, <laughs> like this could yeah. be like every Wednesday they they go see yeah. who's been. <laughs> he's clearly. I've known a few fourteen-year-olds, and he's clearly an unusual fourteen. Yeah, so he knows to look in his eyes enough to say this guy's eyes were a little different. Rob is like his eyes. What are you talking about? Let's race. <laughs> <laughs> Rob hasn't been looking in their eyes. Now, what about Ned? Do you remember what Ned says? Um, well, I remember that Ned, in this chapter, Ned tells Bran that the only time that you can be brave is when yeah. you're afraid. And, and so he does say that. And then he, and so he, he seems to be suggesting that he does think that the man was afraid. Uh huh. Um, but, and clearly he, that comes out when he talks to Catelyn about him. But he thinks that the man died well, something he also... 
Yeah, Ned takes kind of a both and approach, right? That's right. And isn't that isn't that right? I mean, Ned wants all the pieces to fit together and everything to turn out right. And so he's fitting everybody together. He's fitting he's fitting the two perspectives together trying to see it all as correct. I think Ned is wrong. Oh. I think I think he was uh and on some level maybe Ned knows this, but I think Ned was wrong. I think the guy was out of his head. I think he was not brave. Uh, he was just dead of fear. I think John has it right. Right. I think, okay, that's one way to read it. Yeah. I, I do. But it's get... too painful, right? It's too painful for him to say, yeah, you know, he didn't die well. He was completely out of it in fear. He was uh. actually a basically good guy. And I just took his head, you know, and which is in fact true, right? That's what happened. You sh- he probably shouldn't have killed the guy. Ned, at, and, sorry, Ned, answers brand's question with a question yeah he says you know he says like well what do you think and then brand says well is it possible to be both courageous and fearful and then ned makes this sort of grand sweeping statement it's the only time that you can have courage yeah is when you are afraid and i don't know if he really answers brand's question and you do well to bring up later on that uh that ned knows that this guy was beside himself. Yeah. So maybe he's not revealing to Bran everything he thinks. But in his conversation with Catelyn, he says, quote, the man died well. I'll give him that. Oh, he does. Yeah, that's in the next chapter. (laughs) (laughs) So you're seeing elements where, okay, this is sort of a character defect of the Stark men. Yeah. And... They're eventually going to get in trouble because of these character defects. That's right. John can look reality right in the face. The other guys flinch a little bit. Okay. All right. Tell me more about Rob. So you think that Rob gets in trouble. You think that this foreshadows something about Rob's trouble with the Red Wedding or something? Yeah. I mean, I doubt that, you know, Martin probably would write the books faster if he had it all planned out. So... (laughs) He, I, I doubt that he has it planned out at this point. Sure. Um, but yeah, I think he's setting up Rob to be this kind of charismatic leader who uh-huh. charges off a little bit too fast without thinking it through, without kind of fully recognizing those parts of his situation that uh-huh. are disappointing or somehow dark or or not ideal. Uh-huh. And um, and that's exactly what you know if he was if he was willing to sort of accept reality. He would have known better, but he just has this kind of cheery optimism that <clears throat> makes him ignore stuff like that. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. he thought he could get away with it. Sure. Yeah. And I think you see that here. You see it. You see an element of his personality here that that probably did kind of guide that that story later on. Right, 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 right. I just want to say a slight tangent here. I, yeah. I as, as a father, I do not relate to. Ned Stark's decision to allow them to take dire wolves into the home. <laughs> I think it's funny that he sort of You're scolds. Like, do you know how much this is going to cost? <laughs> do you know how much <laughs> a, a full-grown dire wolf is going to cost me? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> We're going to have well, to borrow is... <laughs> money from the Riverlands to pay for your pet. His ridiculous, uh, almost scolding of them that, that they will be expected to take care of these dogs and I'm immediately thinking, like, how old is Rickon again? He's like three or something. Yeah, they're calling gonna, him a baby. <laughs> he's not going to take care of the dog. 
who's going to take care of Rickon's dog, right? Nobody's thinking about that. Yeah. Uh, Ned is not thinking this through. This is, uh, uh, from a father's perspective, this is not a wise choice. <laughs> <laughs> I think that he's, all right, so you're right. And I, and I, I really do feel like with this chapter, I'm drawn to John more than any other character. Yeah. I don't know. I Do you feel like you're more interested in the things that are revealed about Ned, or do you feel like you're more interested in the things that are revealed about John? It's really hard uh, not to think of it in terms of the whole story that I know. Right, right. And, and I really do like all these characters. Um, so mm-hmm. I care about all of them. But yeah, I mean, I think the first time through, John comes out looking like he's destined to be a hero or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just, he's clearly very admirable. He's self-sacrificing. He's wise and he uh, calls things correctly. It does give you the sense, this chapter does a really great job in three different ways of telling you that, that John is an outsider. Yeah. Uh, or at least he's he's occupying liminal space or something. Like, yeah. he's not quite a Stark and... It, even in the passage that I read a little bit earlier, he calls Rob Stark. Mm-hmm. He calls him by the name that he can't have. Yeah. And he, he could call him Rob. I mean, that's how brothers talk to one another. The sure. Same. And and says at one point, I'm no Stark. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And he's but- called a bastard brother. And he, you know, he others himself. By you know, by saying, "Look, these these puppies uh, uh, belong to your true-born children, Lord." He calls him Lord. Yeah, he doesn't call him Father at that point. Yeah, interesting though. When John finds, so John get, sort of gives up his right to a puppy, yeah, but then finds one for himself, right? Uh-huh. And and so that's there's something you know, it, it almost foreshadows his Christ figure kind of. You know, role. He sort of he gives up the puppy for everybody else, and then finds finds one for himself. You know, um, and and then and then the exchange he has with Ned about it is he says, "Oh, he must have crawled away from the others." Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and Ned says, "Or he was driven away." Yeah, foreshadowing. You know, John's. That's right, and I think that there's something about like this puppy is sufficient has sufficiently been othered by the other pups or whatever. Yeah. Uh, or at least geographically, it's just like, no, this is the puppy that is supposed to die. Yeah. And you would expect to die, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the puppy can't find a teat, <laughs> so the, the puppy crawls out into the snow, and he ends up naming the, the pup Ghost. Yeah. It really, this is, this is a puppy that's doomed to die, and it's kind of, it's kind of living this, this uh, ghostly existence now. What is Ghost's status in the books now? Ah, I'm glad you asked. Um, as far as we know, when John is is betrayed and and stabbed to death, he he calls out for Ghost, mm-hmm. suggesting that at least John believes that Ghost is alive. And this has led to a lot of fan speculation, Chad, as you probably know, that uh, that maybe John has warged himself into Ghost. Ah, yeah. Into some kind of ghost cold storage. 
<laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the, we, we expect that John is coming back. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, for those of us, no, no, you, you're not a show watcher. No, I'm not. Because you're a serious man. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All you show watchers got what you deserve. <laughs> uh, it, no, I think that there's something about. Um, there's there's something about John's true parentage that still needs to be revealed in the books that you're really that you really need John around for, and I think I think it's impossible that the show w- would bring John back if it wasn't in Martin's original notes. That, yeah. that's my sense. Yeah. Um, although I do think I do wonder whether John comes back differently. In the books, because Martin has has really made this a big deal about how if Gandalf actually came back from the dead, he wouldn't be greater than he once was. He would be much less than he was before. Ah, and so kind of like when Catelyn comes back as Lady Stoneheart, you get the sense that she's like she's only she's kind of half zombie, you know? Right. She's kind of this revenge monster at some point. She's not really who she was before. Right, right. And so in the show, John basically he's the same as he was. You know, he, he's a little bit more like cynical about his own life or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you don't get the sense that oh no, this is kind of like this half man, half zombie creature. Right. Uh. Who? Yeah. 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 So anyway, I I feel like the the book. I I I'm really excited to see how the books portray Jon Snow. His return, yeah. Yeah, after he resurrects. Interesting. Um, uh, Notable introductions, Chad. This is the first chapter, so there's a lot of introductions. Yeah. We're introduced to the Starks of Winterfell. We hear about Mance Raider, the king beyond the wall. Uh, We meet Theon for the first time. We learn that Valerian steel is spell-forged. Jon Snow, called Bastard Brother who is 14. Rob is also 14, of red-brown hair. Uh, We hear about the blood of the first men, and we hear Rickon called a baby. We we are introduced to Hullen and Jory, and we are introduced to the phrase Seven Hells. Mm -hmm. Book versus show differences. Uh, This is on me, because you're not a show show viewer. Yeah. Um, This is Pretty true to the, how the, how the show depicts. I, I, I my sense. Uh, the biggest differences that I could tell uh, were just the ages of the children. I think that the show ends up aging up all of the children. Mm-hmm. So that that was that was kind of the, the crucial. You know, they play up they play up certain characters that they need to delete in the show, like. Like Holin, like we don't we don't really care who the master of horses at Winterfell in the show, <laughs> you know. Yeah, right. Um. Anyway, what, what were you gonna say? Uh, I I read that they um for whatever reason they switched the the uh, executed man in the book is this man named Garrett who's over fifty, and in the show it's a younger man named. Garrett. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's 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 strange why they did that. I yeah. don't know what the idea. I don't know why they did that. To be honest. Yeah, you really lose something, I think. I mean, it's supposed to be a little curious that this experienced 40-year veteran uh-huh. uh, deserted. And right. you really miss that. 
Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. I don't know. Do do you feel is it more tragic to see a younger man beheaded than an older man beheaded? Yeah, maybe. And I think, you know, if they had depicted Garrett the way he is in the book, he would have had no ears and, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe you really need the ear. Like this actor yeah, this like actor's you just, ears are too pristine for this role. It's funny in a way when you think about it psychologically, it's like a seven-year-old seeing an earless guy over 50 uh-huh. beheaded. Maybe he would just feel like the guy was kind of scary. And I, I have one more question for you. Okay. So we're going to get back together and talk more about Ned, right? Sure. I'm just curious. So you've said Ned has made a poor parental decision <laughs> by, by allowing the kids to keep the, the pups, right? Yeah. Um, otherwise, do you feel like Ned is... Uh, ha, what is your sense of Ned as a father? Oh yeah, I love Ned. I, I I feel like Martin doesn't really like Ned based on things I've heard him say. He's always kind of uh he seems a little irritated with Ned a lot. And I love Ned. I think Ned is doing his very best. And uh and I think he loves the kids and he's trying to raise them the way that they need to be raised for their for their life to work out and and he wants them to be good. He's impressed with John when John is good. I I like Ned. I think he's doing a good job. Now there's one this one line where Bran is noticing that Ned can put on a different face. Yeah. He's like, "Oh, this is okay. So this now now my dad's acting kindly." Or, "Oh no, gosh, now he's wearing the Lord Commander mask." Like that he's not my dad anymore. He's my lord. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, we can do that, we dads. It's true that we can. However, I wonder whether that inconsistency is bad parenting. Like, mm. like for instance, like I think that a lot, a lot of times, good parenting is a lot about consistent parenting, mm. like deliberate, you know, structure. You know what to expect. I represent stability in your life. And and I'm not saying that Bran doesn't have that with Ned. It's just that he's it's kind of built into the family that no dad is dad is two people, and and dad so dad is both my lo- my lord and my father. So he calls him his lord father. So it's almost even built into his title that Ned is two people. Yeah, and Bran even at seven years old, Bran even knows. Yeah, that my dad is not always my dad. Well, I won't pretend to know how the fact that you're raising your kids to be royalty in some sense, uh, (laughs) you know, I I won't pretend that I have a good idea what that means for for a dad or Uh or whatever. And I think, you know, that's heavy on Ned's mind. Um, But I do think that it's important when you're raising kids to give them a sense that there's an authority or a a standard that's above this, this bigger than you as a father that, that you, the, you as a father have to conform to. And uh, you know, what, whether that's a, a religious standard or, or just a moral standard um, I think everybody should be able to acknowledge something like that. And I think that's important to show that to your kids that, Hey, sometimes I have a, a duty um, that transcends all of us. And, you know, in that moment you, you maybe take on a bit of that, lordly persona 
Yeah, it's weird. It's a weird thing. Yeah. I think it's weird. I don't know. Seems strange to me anyway. I, I wonder I sometimes I wonder about these uh these men who have chosen to dedicate their life to society and also raise children. Yeah. I mean it almost I feels like there's no way your kid is gonna be uh well adjusted or I don't know. It it seems it seems very it, here's my point. I think that raising a kid to be royalty or noble is doomed to failure. You're 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 it's it's inevitably you're gonna raise a really weird kid. That's my sense. I mean, look, uh I I, I think if you have a very important job, okay? Yeah. And you're doing that job and your children or one of your children comes to you in the context where you are doing your important job. Uh You're going, you're not necessarily going to be able to treat them the way you would treat them, you know, on a Saturday morning sitting on the couch together. No, I, I get it. I get it, Chad. But guess what? If my job is beheading people, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not gonna not gonna take my 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 seven year old son to go do it because honestly, like I I really do respect these you know sort of people who are powerful that say I kind of don't want that life for my my children. I'm just gonna let them try to have a normal life, right? And if they choose that, if they choose it, then that's fine. Sure, Sure. But I'm not going to bring my children to work. It's like bring your child to work day. For yeah. Okay. So fair enough. I, I I accept that, and I think you know that's a drawback of this of this sort of heritable system of power. Right. Um, right. Let let yeah. the next leader be someone like someone who you know with a well balanced, healthy childhood or tough Scrabble, like I you know I who who sort of achieved through adversity. Don't groom this nobleman's son to be the next nobleman that seems ridiculous well i mean look we're in agreement i'm not for the feudal system right uh, <laughs> but but i do think i do think that there is an element that we can learn from from watching what ned is up to here he's got these 14 year old boys uh-huh. um if you have teenagers as i as i know you do um, yeah there is a sense uh, as they hit their teenage years of like, I only have a few more years with this kid. And they've only it, seen 14 beheadings. We really have to show them <laughs> one more beheading. Yeah, that's uh, right. So it's not beheadings in, <laughs> in our lives. But there are there are truths about the world. There are facts and challenges in the world that you might feel tempted to sort of shield them from. You might feel tempted to shield them from making certain kinds of mistakes. Yeah. And sometimes maybe, I mean, you know, it's hard being a parent, but sometimes maybe it's, it's good to, to open up a little bit and allow some of those mistakes, mm-hmm. allow exposure to things that are upsetting, exposure to things yeah. that they maybe won't exactly know how to handle. So you can start to kind of like guide them as they approach adulthood. And I mean, I see that as what Ned is doing here. I, I agree. I mean, he, sh- he should have been beheading this guy. Uh, I don't believe in that, you know. Ladies and gentlemen, Chad Carmichael, serious man. (laughs) Thanks for having me. That was fun. And now a conversation about my favorite show with someone who doesn't care. Steve, how do you feel about beheading? You know, here's the thing about beheading. It seems seems like uh, 
more humane than it looks, right? I mean, I think it's I think it's worse for the people watching. I think it probably is I think it's meant to humiliate you. <laughs> well, I feel like once you're beheaded, if you're still self-conscious, <laughs> that's on you, man. Uh, all right, let, let's just fill everyone in. You've watched the uh, the first episode, the first aired episode, Winter is Coming, of Game of Thrones. That is correct. And in this show, someone is beheaded. Capital well, there's punishment. A, there's right? a couple of beheadings, right? I mean... Is there? I, yeah, I there's, I... there's, there's, uh, there's two beheadings. There's the, uh, the beheading that leads to the medieval Michael Sarah running away. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, yes. I guess what Teen, Teen Wolf beheads his his friend, not yeah. um, not yes. medieval Matt Damon, but the other guy. But yeah, that's right. Okay, so then then the other one was Ned Stark beheading Michael Sarah. Yeah, Michael Sarah. He's he's beheaded. I was, and I'm against capital punishment. Yeah. That's my own little thing. But I think that if given the choice, you know, like lethal injection or hanging or electric chair, I think give me a beheading. Yeah, you going to want, I mean, there's a couple of things you're going to want to make sure about is you want whatever, whether it's the axe or the sword, make sure it's sharp. You want it to be sharp. You don't, you don't want this thing coming down like a butter knife, right? Like it's that that's problematic and you want the person to be aiming pretty well so you want you want someone as strong as sean bean and you want to you want basically a lightsaber is what you want that's ideal right i mean i think i think that's better for the audience too that's watching it because of the how it uh, cauterizes as it goes through yeah uh, absolutely absolutely i mean really really it's just a it's just a medieval gallagher concert right i mean that's (laughs) That's what it is. But instead of a watermelon and instead of a mallet. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, see, that's the thing is you don't want the Gallagher style. And that's what I'm always afraid of. I heard that that's actually what canceled Gallagher out of culture. Is that, is that what it was? All right. So this was your first viewing of Winter is Coming, right? Yep. First thing, first Game of Thrones thing I've ever, uh, I think, watched it all, to be honest. Now, this show, I don't know if you know this, but this show is not the pilot episode. Is that right? That's right. The pilot episode was written and filmed and judged by all of the power elites of HBO to be a total mess. Hmm. And it's never been aired. Really? So they were so, like, you're going to have to bring up the incest. No, on this one. We're not, we're not touching well, this thing. Unless- here was the problem. One of the problems was it wasn't clearly stated that Jamie and Cersei were siblings. And so that uh-huh. final scene didn't quite make sense okay. to people who were just viewing it for the first time. So in this episode, you see several times, like it's kind of, they hit you over the head with it. That these yeah. two were brother and sister. Okay. Um, they, they rewrote it and refilmed about 90% of it. And got several new actors, huh. and and they've never released the pilot episode. Do you know who, was there anybody of note in the pilot episode? Like, is it like Anthony Michael Hall instead of Sean Bean or something like that? It was Anthony Michael Hall. Oh. And he, he had a problem with an, a wooden elephant that wouldn't work, and he tried to <laughs> kill himself with a flare gun. Oh my gosh, what a tragedy. Yeah, it was, it was, there was a lot of drama. Yeah, and he kept on saying summer vacation is coming and they had to cut. No, it's not. Come on. <laughs> 
All right. So there are a lot of people introduced in this episode. It can be quite a lot to try to figure out yeah. who's who and why they're important. So what, 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 <laughs> how did you receive all of these introductions? It's funny what I don't know about the Game of Thrones, but I guess there's been enough chatter, you know, and enough people discussing it or, or things mm-hmm. that I, I see sort of like as I'm going through other uh, entertainment articles or whatever that I at least you know, I think if I'd gone into this thing cold, I'm, I honestly don't know how I would have, if I would have been like, yeah, I want to see more of this. I mean, obviously, when you push a kid out of a building, you got my attention. And it kind of felt like, I'm, is there an episode I missed? Right. Because it just sort of just goes. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering how long the episode was going to be. I thought, oh, surely they're going to end right there. But what being a book reader, I realized, oh, they're reaching all the way into like chapter eight to really tie this first episode together. Gotcha. So, okay. And I think yeah, that, I, I think I, that I you actually this. span about two or three months. Yeah, you could tell by the age of the of the wolves. Very good. Hey, look look at you, man. Look yeah. at you. You're just jumping right in. Yeah, man. Yeah, I was. I, I mean, you know, when when uh, when Aquaman forces himself on a Gelfling, I think if I had not, you know, known that this was going to be a great series or at least a highly lauded series, I might have been like, I'm not sure if I'm. If this is what I'm, if I'm ready for, and maybe I have a different relationship to the fantasy genre. Is this a fantasy? Is this fantasy, Anthony? I did, my wife and I have been discussing this, and she doesn't think this qualifies as fantasy, but I would, I, mm. I think it does. So Heather says not fantasy. I would say yes, fantasy. Uh-huh. But I would like to hear. Do, do you think that you could mansplain her uh, objections to that classification, or do you just want to put her on? Uh, no, I forget her reason. I think she felt like it was more. Um, maybe adventure. Uh-huh. I said, my understanding is there's dragons. And as soon as there's dragons, I believe that's, that's automatically fantasy. Yeah, I think so. I think in this episode, there weren't dragons, but they were dragon right. eggs. They were dragon right? eggs. So at least there were, there was the existence of dragons. Mm-hmm. Right? I, mean, I think that the opening scene kind of sets the genre. You've got definitely a, I don't know, some sort of horror element. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, how do you feel about like the little monster kids do do anything for you? Like, I think that that's a pretty typical horror trope is to have right. one of the monsters look like a little kid. Yeah. Um, what does I that think, do for you? I think before I had children, I think it would have freaked me out more. <laughs> but now, now you've actually raised a couple monsters. Yeah. And- now you raise them and you go, oh, yeah, well, yeah this is... Yeah, every every night, like they just hover over you. So hover, you're yeah, not, you weren't scared by that first scene. You were kind of like exhausted by it. Well, at that point, I was like, okay, now, like I was, now I can understand why this wasn't maybe considered a fantasy for Heather. This is just seems more grounded in reality. Right. So you, those, those little blue eyes didn't freak you out. You're like, just go to sleep. Close those yeah, things. Exactly. Go to sleep. Yeah. All I can think is the worst thing that that little monster child would do is tell me about the dream it just had. Good lord, go back to bed. <laughs> And I don't know if I'm more or less inclined to be into the idea of dragons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you may have to wait on that. So I, I think my summation is is that I know that this is an assignment, but I would say that I was intrigued. I would watch the second one even if it weren't homework. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm glad to hear it because I know that you're not you're not necessarily drawn immediately to the fantasy genre. No, but yeah, you have a, It seems like you don't mind. You you don't mind a little bit more. I don't mind it. No, I don't. All right. So, Steve, normally I would ask you what you have going on comedy-wise this week, but it sounds like uh, you've been grounded. You're like a pilot without an assignment. 
Yeah, that's very true. We're all, uh, we're, we got lots of shows getting canceled. Just uh, just kind of staying at home, coughing into our elbows and hoping for the best. All right. Well, in that case, where can people follow you online? Where, where can they learn about your shows? Yeah, I mean, if you, uh, Instagram is where I'm relatively active. Uh, that is uh, Ozfest, A-U-S-F-E-S-T. Um, SteveOsborne.com has uh, all the updates to my shows. There are some that I'll be doing, but it's hard to say. I mean, that's everything's tentative right now. All right. Let's see, see if we can salvage seven minutes out of that right on. nonsense. You got it, man. We're getting geared up for the sixth annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. Dr. Lisa Woolfork is a professor of American literature and African-American literature at the University of Virginia. And if you want to read something that she wrote that I found really just wonderful, she did a review on Harriet. And she has a lot of interesting things to say about the way that African-American women are portrayed in American film. But today, Lisa and I are talking specifically about Brand's point of view and the worldview created by A Song of Ice and Fire. Welcome, Lisa Wolfwork. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here and excited to talk about Game of Thrones. Yeah, we we're be excited we are, to talk about this. I'm thrilled to have you. Lovely. Your voice sounds great. Well, let's talk about our voices. I love talking about voices. Do you really? I do because I like to ask people, what is your relationship with your own voice? You know, it's such a it's such a great question, Anthony, because my relationship to my own voice has been one that has been shaped in a great part by African-American culture and white supremacy. 
Tell and me the, everything there is to, to know about that. Well, that would be a totally different podcast. So I can't <laughs> tell you everything there is to know about it. All right. But there is a phenomenon within many African-American cultures called code switching. Mm-hmm. And this is when it's kind of like, have you ever seen someone like talk to a baby Mm-hmm. or talk to dogs, yes, and their voice rises in a register, mm-hmm. um, you know, that they think might seem less threatening to the dog. Or Absolutely. You know what? This is even gendered because I, my wife has noted that if I'm on the phone with a female friend, my, the affect of my voice changes as opposed to being on the phone with a male friend. Yes, exactly. And I think that everybody makes these subtle little shifts in their voice based on who they're talking to, Mm -hmm. based on relationships, based on, you know, social relations. Is this someone who you're in like a peer relationship with? Is this someone in your family? This is even a cousin that you haven't talked to in a long time. Like, you know, that our voices tell the stories of our lives. And so for me, I grew up in a family, at least with my mother, at least, who code switched. And I could always tell when she was talking to a white person on the phone. Oh, yeah. Because her voice sounded entirely different. Um, And what a lot of black folks are taught is that white supremacy requires us to alter ourselves just to get our foot in the door. Right. So like, you know, with the different resume studies, if someone's named Jamal and he changes his his name to James, he might get more callbacks or whatever just because of racism. And I think that's absolutely true about voice and podcasting in particular. And so at least in my own podcast, I have tried very hard. I mean, I grew up code switching. I grew up feeling like there was a certain way to be intellectual, a certain way to Mm -hmm. perform well. And all of that is shaped by what makes white people comfortable. Well, what you said before that I really loved was that it really, your voice tells a story about you. It really does. And it's, and it's, it's powerful because the story is implicit. Mm -hmm. And, and as with any narrative, it requires the audience to have certain preconceived notions. And so the audience is really supplying half the story. Absolutely. Absolutely. We could easily find each other in conflict or at least in misunderstanding simply because we've been told different stories or told to expect different stories over the courses Mm -hmm. of our lives. Mm -hmm. All right. Now what I'm going to do, I'd like to read you two passages from Brand's first chapter. Excellent. Now, what edition do you have? Does Brand for you start on page 13? Indeed. Perfect. Yeah. I'm going to read you a, I'm going to read you two passages that I think relate to the concept of otherness. Mm -hmm. And I want to get your, I'm curious to start the conversation parlaying off what we had just talked about. He remembered the hearth tales old Nan told them. The wildings were cruel men, she said, slavers and slayers and thieves. They consorted with giants and ghouls, stole girl children in the dead of night, and drank blood from polished horns. And their women lay with the others in the long night to sire terrible, half-human children. So that is Bran's impression of some of the stories old Nan has been telling him. And then on page 16, about halfway down, 
Ned does his best to deconstruct these stories, but then he supplies his own sort of social commentary. So his Lord father smiled. Old Nan has been telling you stories again. In truth, the man was an oath breaker, a deserter from the night's watch. No man is more dangerous. The deserter knows his life is forfeit if he is taken. So he will not flinch from any crime, no matter how vile. So, I both of those are examples to me of revealing something of otherness from this particular worldview. And I'm curious to hear your impressions of those passages. This is excellent because as I was rereading in advance preparation for our conversation today, I definitely noticed that and what old Nan's stories were representing not just for Bran as a character, but for the narrative itself within Game of Thrones. And if we think about it this way, the reason that children are told certain formative stories and tales is to help them make sense of the adult world. Hmm. And this is about, for me, it's about politics. It's about the feudal system Hmm. that Game of Thrones is based around. And it's about maintaining certain social order. Yes, And so for me to have old Nan say, and a lot of them use the others or the others in capital letters or the wildlings as boogeymen, Mm -hmm. as these people who live far away, who will come and take your blah, blah, blah. Like all of these things are stories that people tell, I believe, as a hedge as a wall in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. So not only is it that huge wall, of course, that's north of Winterfell protecting where the Night's Watch is, Mm -hmm. it's also a narrative and a discursive wall that says this is the boundary that we draw between us and them. And that's why I think it's so important that the story of Game of Thrones begins with the prologue and not just with Bran's chapter. And the idea of Bran being a child, Bran being seven years old, Mm. Bran being very young and impressionable, but also seen as being old enough to start to take on adult responsibilities, that it seems this question of the wildlings and the others maps on very neatly to what we know already about how cultures scapegoat outsiders. I'm glad that you used the term scapegoat. And here's why. When I read these passages, I think everything you said about creating a hedge is dead on. And I think the context of this passage is that this group of writers are heading to a beheading. (laughs) Right, exactly. And so this particular portion of the story is enclosed in a form of institutionalized and thus normalized violence, right? Oh, of course. And so how do you justify to yourself that capital punishment is necessary? Well, one way that you do it is you convince yourself that the person that is under the sword is in the sense, like you said, a boogeyman. Um, This person is not human in the same way that I'm human. And therefore, their life is not to be mourned. It's for the good of all of my people that this person's life is ended. Yes. And I see that justification both for the wildings, which Bran mistakenly thinks that this this guy is a wilding, right? 
That's right. And so, but it's okay that, that he has to be beheaded because, of course, wildlings are cruel men and they steal children in the night. And so they're really othered in that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, but then Ned comes in to say, "Ah, eh, it's not. Come on, it's that. That's a that's an old wives' tale, right? That's that's one of Nan's stories. Uh, an old woman taught you that, in other words. But then he supplies a different sort of narrative that justifies the violence. And that same narrative does the same work that old Nan's work does. So yes. even though Ned wants to dismiss what old Nan says because she's old and she's a woman and, mm-hmm. you know, et cetera. He then offers a similar narrative that basically says, if you break the rules of this culture, you deserve to die. Yes. That's, that's basically it. That, and that is something that both Nan is, Nan is telling Bran these things because he's a boy that likes stories. And mm-hmm. you can, you know, that if you, if you think about some of the fairy tales in our own culture about like Little Red Riding Hood and Snow White, all of these stories are about compliance to authority, you know? <laughs> and teaching it's, children that, no, that sh- shape up or, or this is going to happen. Exactly. You, right? If you don't, you're going to end up in a pie, you know, <laughs> like... <laughs> We tell our kids stories like that, you know, and it's just like, whoa, that's really harsh. Yeah. You know, all I, I was just curious. Well, don't ever be curious because then you end up in a pie. Um, <laughs> this is exactly what Ned is doing as well. He's saying this man was an oath breaker. Mm-hmm. He promised something and then he, he broke that promise. And it's just so interesting to me. And I know we don't want to get past chapter one, but I would encourage listeners and readers to think about what an oath breaker means and how great the consequences are for some people versus for other people. That's right. And this deserter, Garrett, he's trying to exercise some form of agency over his life. He's like, no, 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 I'm not going yeah. to stay I don't want to the get, wall. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get killed by the others and the White Walkers. That's I, right. I'm going to take my that? own life into my hands and then this is what happens to him. I mean, it seems to me that like, you know, this is I know this is a big question, but I think that the seeds and the kernels of everything that happens in the entire series are planted in the prologue and in Brand's chapter, Mm. Uh, because I would say that Ned's problem is a problem that he demonstrates in the conversation that you just highlighted a few minutes ago about um, the idea of an oath breaker. Okay. um, That. Ned believes that someone who breaks his oath to the crown deserves to die. Mm -hmm. And that type of naivete is what leads to his shortened lifespan. Because what he, you know, it's like he's playing checkers and everybody else is playing chess. (laughs) He thinks that if you comply, you survive. And it's not about compliance in the end at all. It has nothing to do with compliance. That's right. It has to do with who holds the power at that particular time. Um, yes. And because of his belief in the feudalism, in the monarchy, in the line yeah, of he believes in the system. He thinks he that the really system de- will, yeah, will benefit. Which him. is hilarious to me. Yes. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think that's hilarious. I think, I think, oh, Stannis Baratheon is hilarious. I mean, all of these people who think that, oh. Let's just see. Um, let's just have our line of succession move in an uninterrupted line with no difficulties. 
even though we stole the crown yes from the targaryen yeah we were involved I, in the rebellion yeah, that, exactly. we that, that were, undermined those laws in the first place right exactly those laws that had been around for hundreds and hundreds of years yeah. and now all of a sudden we want something new and now we want it to be exactly the same as the old and i'm like mm-hmm. What's that? I think this is some famous band. Um, I don't know this music, but this is a famous band. It says something like, meet the new boss the same as the old boss. Yeah, yeah, the who. That's right. Yes, yeah, yeah. so I don't know their music, but I know that line. Um, <laughs> and this idea of the changing same is a pretty popular uh, refrain yeah. in African-American cultural studies. And that's what we're looking at here, is that one of the reasons I think that Ned perhaps holds so fiercely to the structures of the feudalism that he has helped to build is because he shed blood for it, right? Mm. Um, He's lost people for it. And so he has to believe in it because if he doesn't, then what was it all for? Well, in addition to that, Ned is, he's a man of the North, right? Mm -hmm. So, so he's got a system that he thinks is even more entrenched than what's going on with Southern politics. Yes, that's and right. Because of the so blood of he, the first men that's running right. their veins, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and he says our ways are the older ways. We're a little bit different than those Southerners. We, we do things. And I think he doesn't say that, that they do them better, but that's the, that's that's the implication. And so Ned is living with under this system whereby he thinks, look, if I can just do right by my ancestors. Yes, then and bring honor to my tribe then i've lived a righteous life and i think that there's merit to that particular point of view i just don't think he's well suited for southern politics like at all <laughs> i don't think he's suited for any politics oh, oh no i think he i think he does very well as sort of the warden of the north I don't know. I think as soon as he enters that world of sort of cutthroat culture down south, he is uh, out of his element. I think so. That's that's my view anyway. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. This is someone who is more warrior than politician. Uh Um, I think he finds politics distasteful. Yeah. Um, He has a lot of contempt for the infrastructure of the system he has helped to build through the violence that he prefers. I think that his his ethical frame is a very simple one, but at the same time, it serves the system ideologically. You know, when we think about for Brand, for example, he says that in this same chapter we're discussing, one day you will be a banner man to Rob, right? He clearly mm. believes that Rob, as he believes in the rule of primogeniture, mm. Rob is the firstborn, Rob will inherit, and everybody else gets dispersed out, right? Yes, right. Um, and so and this, we see this in his, in his discussions with Arya, right? He doesn't really know what to do with Arya, even though he sees Arya, he sees in Arya, his beloved lost sister, he doesn't know what to do with a girl who is not prepared to conform. That's right, because um, he is gender expectations. Exactly. He is so committed to the system that he doesn't know what to do with someone like Arya, who seems to she's a person that is going to thrive in some other system, but not the one that he believes in. Exactly, exactly. And I'm not sure if this is just a lack of imagination. Is it a lack of flexibility? 
Hmm. Um, that Ned is often seen as like, oh, Mr. You know, girl dad or whatever. Um, he's, you know, but at the same time, he really wants everybody just to be in line and comply, which That's is right. funny for someone who is a rebel. Right. So how do you rebel, rebel, rebel? And then you want everyone to comply, comply, comply. <laughs> right. So this is interesting to me because we have an example of John in chapter one who he's able to save these these wolf pups. Right. Yes. Yes. And he's naming the number and gender of these wolves in a way that excludes himself. Yes. And yes. So in excluding himself from the normalized Stark children, mm-hmm. which he's been taught to do. That's right. He's able to reinforce the stability of the clan in Bran's eyes. Yes. So he's able to reinforce the social structure by taking on this submissive and, and, and really secondary role. And so John, by reminding everyone hey i am not a trueborn stark child it almost is a sense of relief for everyone else <laughs> in the story right yes well of course because it reinforces the system it actually reinforces the system it shows that basically everybody in this story has a role to play right Everybody has a role. Everybody has, at least in the, that one of the things that when we talk about something I talk about in my class, we talk about honor. What does honor mean? Is honor Mm. provisional? Mm. Who gets to make decisions based totally on honor? And at the end of the day, what is being honored? Is it the social structure? Is it the governmental structure? Is it the family structure? Is it the authority of the father? The father writ large within the larger kingdom or the father in the whole fast? Like all of this has to do with maintaining the system the way it is. Mm. Mm. And that everyone is trained in that from the very beginning, because there's no way that, you know, that talk about provisional John is someone who is there by the largesse of Ned. Yes. And Catelyn hates his guts and sees him as a threat to her legitimate children and Basically, why would you bring a snake on an airplane? That's what's happening with bringing Jon Snow home. He's going to murder all the children and take over. And, you know, I mean, like she has a lot of contempt and suspicion of him. um, And she continues to have that always. Yeah. And it just seems to me that the system doesn't work unless everybody does their part. That's right. Jon, in short order, is going to choose to go to the wall. Mm hmm. And but he makes this choice when he's drunk. That's another thing we should think about. If he's at the dinner. That's true. No, he's totally shit-faced. He is really drunk. No one's I paying attention to him. That. He's drunk. He's a drunk teenager. So drunk teenagers don't make good decisions. Yeah. Um, but he really doesn't have anywhere else to go. That's right. He's making the only choice he feels like he can make mm-hmm. in a way that he can honor the system. Yes. And but but carve out a life for himself where he's not being loathed at every turn by Catelyn's wary eye, right? No, right. And this is hard way. We don't know. We don't know Garrett's story, but it's stories like this that lead men to the wall in the first place. And the story kind of begins with 
a, an example of someone who's deserted the wall. That's right. That's right. Uh, and we, I mean, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, we, we, we do know what's going to happen to John. That's um, right. But uh, in, in a sense. But John's choice to go to the wall, he's going to almost immediately regret. That, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I think that the wall is such an interesting place. And I'm very curious to see how you approach it in the series. Because the wall has touted itself as a place where everybody mm. gets what they earn hmm. um you know but i know that in one of the articles that the in the beyond the wall collection they talk about it as a penal colony mm. um, because this is basically it's like you can either you know have your hand cut off or other body parts mm. cut off and be or be sent to the wall you can decide what you want to do um and so basically it's a form of, I ask, I say, is, I ask students, is the Night's Watch a house of its own? Mm. Um, they, well, I feel like, so this is something that I, I just talked about recently, and maybe mm-hmm. I could get your take on it. The Walt really touts itself as being a place, uh, it's almost meant to be an egalitarian brotherhood. Right. But. It's not. <laughs> but why is Waymar Royce put in charge of this exactly. ranging mission? Uh-huh. Why does Lord Jorah Mormont start grooming Jon Snow so early for command? These guys at the wall have just as much social of a social hierarchy and have formed opinions based on this perception of noble blood as anyone else. Oh yes, absolutely. But they've they've told themselves this story that they're really egalitarian, and maybe they're like in a few ways they are like just baby steps away from the feudal system. Very but, very baby, but very baby <laughs> steps, right? No, it's absolutely true. I mean, like if the wall was a true meritocracy, mm-hmm. I don't believe that there are any true meritocracies. But if the wall were one of them, there's no way that some 19-year-old who has own, or 18-year-old who's only been on the wall for a few, what, a year right. maybe, yeah. and this is his first thing out, would be in charge of people who've been there years longer than them. Yeah, I think right. basically the social system killed them all. And I think that this is what happens when people believe their own press. Right. This is what happens when um, you get so invested in the system that the system matters more than the people in it. Um, And that's true for the feudalism in the novel overall. Mm -hmm. It's true for the Night's Watch, um, for people who kind of who who come to the Night's Watch with this naive belief, Um, the people who don't have anything else to believe them because because they've lost everything. Mm. So um, Sam really does benefit from brotherhood Mm. when he comes to the wall that, you know, that John being kind to him, Mm. for example, or so when Donald Noy pulls John aside to say, Hey, basically you're being a dick and someone's going to kill you in your sleep. (laughs) Right. right. Like he's, he's doing this in a way to kind of help, the system overall function yeah. better. Yes. But John takes that lesson to say, you know, that brotherhood has always been something that's provisional for John. He was always sometimes a son 
right? Like, mm. you know, in mm. private, Ned loved him and talked about him as a son and claimed him as a son. But in public, you know, when they're all there at the beheading, um, you know, John calls him Lord Stark, right? He doesn't say yes. father. He says right. Lord Stark because he knows that this is his father, but he can only be his father in certain contexts. Right. This right? is a very public setting. And, yes. and Ned is about to make this official tribal decision, right? Exactly. And so like there's, or when, when they find, when they find the, the wolves, right? Um, and John, like you said, is the one because, you know, and Brand notices this, the count only comes correct mm. because John omits That's right. himself. That's right. Right. And so he's used to a form of self-abnegation in exchange for a home, Mm -hmm. in exchange for some affection, Mm -hmm. in exchange for lots of different things. Right after he does that, from Brand's point of view, Ned regards John thoughtfully. In other words, he can capture his father's gaze in a way that affirms him when he takes on this role of subservience. Yes. And this is the way that John knows that he can thrive, however, you know, to, to a certain limit, but he can thrive in this system as a bastard. Yes. Everyone can thrive as long as they stay in their place. Yes. You stay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> know your place and, the, yeah. and and you're okay. You're one of the good ones. Yeah. And of yeah. course, you know, someone like, Arya or someone like Brienne, um, even someone like Theon, mm. these are people that they don't have a place. And they realize yes. they realize yes. that they don't have a place. Even if they work within the system, they don't have a place. And so they've decided, no, I'm I'm gonna make my own path That's come right. what may. That's right. That's right. I'm going to. But of course, we know in this first chapter what happens to people who try to make their own path. I mean, it's pretty. It's a pretty ruthless society, you know. That's (laughs) that's pretty apparent. Okay, because this is an introduction to really the. I mean, in a way, this is an introduction to the all of these characters. Mm -hmm. A lot of these characters are introduced for the first time, but I want to just give you a list of words that are used for the first time in this chapter. Okay. So notable introductions of these specific words, Lord Father, mm-hmm. Ninth Year of Summer. Yes. Late Summer Snows, Summer Wine, Great Sword, the word Moon Turn, hmm. and the word Trueborn. Yes, I was just going to say about that, Trueborn Children, yes. Okay, tell me, yeah, so these words are... These words do something because they're introduced in this chapter. They do something for world building. And I wonder if I could just have you reflect a little bit on some of the world building here. Well, I think the element that stands out the most and what I believe will be of most significance to the series overall is Trueborn. Yeah. Yeah. Trueborn is everything in this world. The idea of having a child that is from the proper lineage, the proper parenting, um, the proper bloodline. Yes. Um, I think that's absolutely critical. And it's part of the, the whole problem that sets the, the major conflict of the story in motion. Yes. Yeah, socially endorsed progeny. 
right? Yes. And it's funny because when you think about true born, the way they talk about it is that um, it's, it's very naturalized, right? Mm. That um, you can have children that are tr- true born versus bastard born or ill born or yeah, something like born. that. Yeah. Base born or base born. Um, so and it seems to me that true born sounds like a word that is uncontestable. <laughs> that we know what true born means. Yeah. Huh. And yet you can always naturalize a bastard, right? You have that ability. And for me, it makes me wonder if someone can become true born. Yeah. How, you know, how valuable is the notion of true born? Well, it's worth everything. It's, it's all of the social currency of this oh, yeah. world is wrapped around this, this particular notion, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's true. It's absolutely true. Okay. So the only thing that I think might rival that introductory concept is this idea of the ninth year of summer. I mean, yeah, that says so much. It, it, you're thinking, well, this is unlike anything I've ever experienced. This world does not work like my world works. Um, and it prepares you for just a world that's almost entirely alien, but you want to get in it. You know, you want to get yeah, in that you, world. You want to know more. You definitely want. Yeah. I mean, he's very, very good at cliffhangers, as we all know. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and it's almost like every chapter ends with one. Yeah. And it really does kind of keep you going. And that's one of the things I find so remarkable about the difference between the prologue and the first chapter oh. and why I think the prologue does such a good job of setting up part of the story. Right. But we, I believe that the first chapter helps to kind of round out the story for those people who aren't going to be drawn into a mm. sword and sorcery type story. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's the folks who aren't going to be interested in that, but instead might be interested in the political intrigue, mm. uh, might be interested in... Um, the 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 family dynamics the yeah. hierarchy the feudalism the pageantry the hmm. all of these things that come with this type of story hmm. um it's something i actually i did a tedx talk about game of thrones maybe like four years ago oh gosh um, we gotta we gotta link that uh, so we, we're gonna <laughs> we want to search uh lisa dr lisa wolfork uva tedx right yes and the name of the talk was daenerys targaryen walks into a starbucks Oh, I love it. I can't wait. I'm going to watch it as soon as we, as soon as we <laughs> hang up. I had this, this whole structured interview oh, <laughs> set up, but, but this conversation was so interesting and so free-flowing that I didn't get to a lot of what we're doing. I'd love to have you back on another oh, yeah, time to talk about sure. another chapter. That sounds great. I have my book here at home. I don't even have to venture to my office for it. Um, <laughs> so I can maintain social distancing okay. and still participate. <laughs> now, Dr. Jamie Smith. Jamie Smith, welcome to Electric Bookaloo. Thanks, mate. Oh, I, did, I didn't realize that's what it was called, but that's great. We're calling this Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. <laughs> that's funny. Okay, so guest choice. Um, you can choose to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or you and I together can just climb the ladder of chaos, which means we just... <laughs> Do we just see where the conversation goes? Yeah, let, let's. I'm really into climbing the ladder of chaos. So oh, excellent. I'll excellent. select chaos. <laughs>
Wow. You know, this is very in keeping with my perception of you. I, you. You seem like the kind of person who would choose chaos if given the option. Well, I always harbor this desire to burn the whole place down anyway. <laughs> okay. All right. I got three, four things that I okay. want to hit on. First of all, let me go to, let me go to the demythologizing question. So, like, direwolves haven't been in the house in the south of the wall for 200 years, according to this mm-hmm. chapter. And here they are as this sort of people who have this sigil, which in one, on one level harkens back to their heritage, but their heritage has a reality steeped in things of the north being south of the wall or yes. pre-wall reality. That's right. So, like, that's their re- that is their deep history, but now mm-hmm. you wonder, do they think of themselves in that way? And so when Bran goes out, they're kind of worried about the wildling because they see, they see the wildling as other. They haven't even heard of others yet. Mm-hmm. And so they see this otherness, other person there, who's actually just a man from the wall, but Bran thinks it's a wildling at first. And so I was just mindful of suddenly this is a part of this whole foretelling thing where there's a dire wolf there this is sort of a a breaking of the mythology so to speak they've come to sort of think of those sorts of things as not really quite real it's a sigil it's a historical thing but now here is a dead dire wolf so i think that's happening in this narrative here we've got this sort of the shock of what as I like it, uh, the shock of monsters of the past being confronted in the present uh-huh. and, and rearranging their world in some small way. Well, at this point, it's small. I mean, it starts off small, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. You know, one thing I really like about Game of Thrones is that it certainly has this backdrop of mythology in the same way that Tolkien would have a backdrop of mythology. And, you know, you can think of other fantasy narratives. but to give it a little bit more flavor, A Song of Ice and Fire also has pop culture, right? Mm-hmm. So they've got this, they've got like a song, you know, a song of Bear and the Maiden Fair, or right. they've right. got these these little, like Nan's bedtime stories or whatever. These things are as much a part of the vernacular of Martin's world. And you almost hear about them more often than you hear about the prince that was promised or whatever. Those are sort of like, oh, that's religious. That's someone else's religion. We're not really interested in that as much as we are to hear the next tavern song. Or- sure. Although, you know, some of those pop culture things, like, you know, Nan's um, songs, mm-hmm. that to me was a part of the, I was going to ask you this question about that sort of thing. Uh, whether you think that there's a demythologizing going on or a remythologizing going on. Mm, yeah, probably this. probably the second. I, I mean, my guess is the second. Yeah, uh, like, go, so go ahead. Well, I was just thinking, what, let's take something like the generation that of winter that lasted you know, seemingly forever yeah. and that the white workers came and they had spiders as big as hounds and whatnot. Right. So that, to me, that sounds like something that may have existed in personal memory that then was lost over several generations. And then it sounded so outlandish that it could only exist within the genre of legend. And so Nan is then taking these old stories and repackaging them as fairy tales. Yes. 
Well, how does that strike you? I, I, she's repackaging them. I don't know what Nan thinks of them, though. Like, uh, I think about some grandparents telling us stories, and there's a like. If I think about, I've I've met some people from the hills of Kentucky, like some serious hill folk, mm-hmm. and when they tell stories. I think that it's, I think, oh, this is a fictional sort of entertainment type thing. I don't think they're thinking it's fictional entirely. Mm. Their sense of mythology is this may be fictionalized in the way I'm performing it, but it's core truth isn't. And there really are, sure, you know, uh, things afoot out there out in the woods and so on and so forth. Right. And so this is what I was thinking. Like, there's some of these people, like, I remember Cersei once referring to the what's beyond the wall as grumpkins. Yeah, snarks and, and grumpkins. That's snarks right. and grump and grumpkins. And this is what those monsters have become in the mythologized uh-huh. uh, South. Um, they're less so as they go north. And so Nan's in the north. And I wonder... Does she sort of... Well, we all do that from time to time. And I, I think it takes an extremely rare person tell me this is the first time i've ever said this out loud so you tell me if i'm if i'm full of it yeah. it takes a very rare person to have the same relationship to ghosts in the dark as they do in the light mm. like like i don't believe in ghosts but there have been times at <laughs> three in the morning <laughs> yeah where the idea of i relate to the concept of ghosts much differently I I just watched a scary movie or whatever. It's like emotionally, it's more charged for me, even though I know it's not real. I don't know if that makes any sense. That's fantastic. I think this is exactly how we should be thinking of Nan telling her stories. Uh That in the, in the, and maybe just people like Nan, Mm. the Nans of the North, where they'll tell their stories to those kids. And in the South, blah, yeah, whatever. But in the North, things are darker. They feel the crisp. Mm of winter coming mm-hmm. um things are a little bit more real up there and, right you, know, you can at one point subscribe to the narrative yeah of course that says hey there might be a ghost in my room but by day uh there's no ghost in my room i'm scientifically minded yes that's right i think that's right mm-hmm. i mean for some people like for some people maybe the other people have no they're never up at three in the morning they never scary movies don't change their the way that they think at all i I don't Mm, know psychos i call them (laughs) (laughs) okay we're still climbing the ladder of chaos anything else you'd like to uh, any other rungs of this ladder that you'd like to i got another question for you okay uh gary i'm going to go ahead and assume that we agree that the the supposed wildling but actually man from the wall who taken the black was actually Garrod from the prologue. I think so. And I think it is definitely that case because Martin points out that he's has frostbitten ears or ears that have been eaten away by frostbite and he's missing a finger. And that's exactly how Garrod was described in the prologue. And, and a little bit small and all those kinds of Yes. Exactly. Um, I would imagine half those guys out there are missionary ears. <laughs> <laughs> no, but in the narrative, in the language of storytelling, we yes. have all of the all of the signals that these two characters are connected, right? Yes. So here's my question: Is he a prophet or a poltroon? Oh, geez. You, tell me more about this. I, you say, so, say more about this. So, is he 
okay, so we know from the prologue that he was the one who was genuinely aware of, man, there's other things out here and we really need not be messing around. Uh I think we are supposed to assume he's taken off. But has he come to warn us? Or I have a theory about this, but has he come to warn us or warn the Southerners, hey, it's all blowing up, winter's coming, there really are others, and beware. Mm-hmm. Or is he a craven coward who's just fleeing for his life south of the wall? Can it be both? I don't know. I, I think it's his, I want to say that he's, he's a coward. I wanted to hope he was a prophet coming down to risk uh-huh. himself. But when I was reflecting on the prologue, he was kind of insisting that the men died up there. In the, remember, they found eight men who were dead. Yes. They died because of the cold, even though he knew it wasn't cold enough. But did he? Oh, so this is what I was going to say earlier. Here's Bran. He hears this question and answer session when yes. they pull him off the wall to the, where they've hung him for the evening or whatever before they behead him. And in that question and answer session would have been, why are you not up at the wall? And his answers would have to be, I'm assuming, the prophetic response. There's, there's winter really is coming. Later on, Ned Stark has some sort of iffy responses and same with uh, Jory, I think his name is, uh-huh. had some sort of sense of war foreboding going on. Yes. And I wondered, oh, did they hear from, they heard the questions and they understood the significance, but Bran didn't of what the guy was saying, but they didn't, at the same time, they didn't believe him enough to kill him. Right. So that's interesting. I think I, there's a couple of ways to answer this, but one of the, the way that I'm probably most comfortable with is I think that Martin wants us to be smarter than the characters in the story on this one point. Mm. So he wants the characters to be smarter than us on a number of points. Like for instance, like Varys or Littlefinger or Illyria or whoever, these people have information that we don't have. And so they're sort of mysterious to us. In fact, Ned has information we don't have on John's true parentage, right? Yeah. But on this one point, and I think that this is, this is a sort of typical for a, a work of horror. The reader knows that the monster exists long before the protagonist knows that the monster exists. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It always just struck me as interesting that that guy knows a lot of stuff and Bran doesn't realize the significance of it. And mm. he gets, and clearly the others don't believe it. Right which to me is, is reflective of this whole story. I think that there's a common, this is true in the ancient world, and it's also true in some places in the modern world, but there's this common notion that people of low birth are more superstitious or people of lower social status are more superstitious. So this guy's at the wall. We don't get the sense that he's highborn or whatever. Mm. He's a commoner. Yeah. And so his perception of reality or any sort of warnings that he gives, these are going to be not going to be taken as seriously as someone like Benjen Stark. What do you right. think? Yeah, I love it. So the cultural classification of the character determines the reliability of their witness. That's interesting. Yeah. Commoners believe in stories that you tell around the campfire. They are not serious 
people that uh, strategize at war tables. That, that, that's the idea. Mm. This is probably a gendered problem too, you know? Women are not going to be taken as seriously as, as the men. So I think that there's a social structure that influences who's trustworthy and who's not. Yeah, that's interesting. Because like, I, this goes back to the character development. Like, it was interesting to me that Garrett, I'm going to go with Garrett is a poltroon, a craven person. He's really a nice guy, but let's face it, he doesn't want to fight the others. So he flees the yeah, He war. freaks out. He, he, he completely freaked out. He, it, was, it was a fight or flight instinct yeah. and yeah. It, flight took over. Yeah, so here's this, exactly. And so think about that kind of guy. And uh, when his head gets cut off, it rolls right up to Theon Greyjoy. And I always thought, oh, that's kind of interesting because of what we learn later about Theon, yes. who then doesn't, who just kind of drills down into his character by kicking it and laughing. And then we get John's refer to him as an ass yes. immediately. And I thought that's kind of a real interesting setup for what should we be thinking of Theon Greyjoy? Yes, and it introduces just some some crucial difference between these two extreme characters. Uh, in, in a way, Theon is a he's a stand-in for the Ironborn, and John is really at this point a creature of the North. He is, you know, he's he's stern, he's serious, he survives. That's 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 who he is. He's kind of frozen in place. He's not swashbuckling or anything like that. <laughs> Well, I so I guess so. You're taking like when Theon kicks his head, uh, Garrett's head around and starts laughing, as a little bit of swashbuckling, sort of rolling disposition. Yeah, this is all sport for him. <laughs> you know, Ned like Ned would probably side with John on this. Ned is always like, "Look, you got to swing the sword yourself if you give the sentence, and you got to look him in the eye. Don't take any pleasure in it." but it's got to be done. You know, this is business. Yeah. And Theon is like, look, this is, let's go have some fun. Let, let's, let's go out and knock some heads off of people's shoulders. And that's, th- this is his idea of, a, of sport, I think. Yeah. Well, and it's a question like the degree to which he mirrors the character of your average Ironborn, because like they're, they tend to be pretty, no-nonsense type people, swashbuckling they may be. No-nonsense, but I kind of feel like, okay, you, you're going to have to correct me if I get this wrong. I have the impression of the Ironborn that they hold their, their own lives pretty lightly. Like, mm. like they feel like every time they step onto a, a boat, they may meet the, the drowned god. They may just find themselves at the bottom of the sea and so much the better, you know, you live, live your life hard and fast and don't hold on to it too carefully. Whereas the Stark is like, look, we got to survive winter. Whatever else happens, you stay with the pack, you survive the, the horrible things that are coming. Yes, this is Theon's casual regard for what other people hold sacred. Yes. And uh, that, of course, leads to some of his other actions, that kind of character. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. What do you think? Yeah, I like it. Because, you know, we know where Theon goes and uh, we know where John goes. And at this point, John thinks it's, I don't think he's 
squeamish about someone kicking his head. He just sort of thinks it's an unnecessary flourish. But mm-hmm. the but Theon seems to think he he overcomes that and goes right ahead and kicks it, sort of almost like intentionally. Because later, if you think about later on when he tries to reassert him, assert himself as a true Ironborn and he's mm-hmm. going to rule Winterfell and everything like that, that's. That every time I read that through that that narrative, it, it was like Theon was trying to overcome himself in order to do those things, to do those things uh, in spite of himself. You know, uh, like he has a little bit of the North in him, but he's trying to make sure he's Ironborn. Yes. Well, I think Theon is. He's. I think he's tragic. I think he's lost. Yeah. I think he's lost because he'll. He's always going to. He'll never be a creature of the North truly. But because he spent so much time in the North, he'll never truly be an ironborn it's it's kind of like so like you you know how this is uh living in america as an australian you are always sort of a representative of australia for any american that you meet right (laughs) i hope so um and yet when you go back to australia people probably call you oh here comes the american oh gosh well they i don't they don't yes they actually judge me for everything i hate about the usa well yeah but you're a representative of you're the expert in the room when it comes to america because you've lived here for i don't know 20 years or whatever right yes i am yes that's true so so you you are more american than your australian family members who are who've never lived here oh yes, yes. and yet you're certainly not as american as your you know southern ohioan neighbors (laughs) yes right and one of those probably brings you a little bit of pride and one of those probably brings you a little bit of shame (laughs) yes exactly yeah it's a third culture thing so we can sort of say theon is living in his third culture yes exactly all right man this has been fantastic and i uh i would love to have you back to maybe talk about a danny chapter how's that sound yeah that'd be great fun and now for this week's bird's eye view. For this week's bird's eye view, I'd like to introduce you to a word that I learned in fancy lad school. That word is liminal or liminality. In chapter one, we meet our characters in liminal space. This means that we find them at a threshold. Whenever a threshold is being occupied or crossed, we could call it liminal space. Liminality can bespeak a sensory threshold or a transformative border. In fantasy literature, whenever we find children in a wood, for example, we should keep our eyes open for a magical threshold. Here are just a few thoughts on the liminality of chapter one. First, the seasons are about to change, and we know in Martin's world that the seasons are magic. The wall is most clearly a magical border from which Garrett has escaped. Garrett himself is on the border of life and death. So Garrett is a liminal character. Direwolves are thought to be creatures from the other side. And this becomes a, a key point of dialogue in the book. What is the direwolf doing on this side of the border? The wolf pups have just entered the world, so they've just passed a threshold from one world to the next. In Celtic culture, messengers from the other side often take the form of stags. So in addition to being the sigil for House Baratheon, the stag as a beast may represent liminality. 
And in case you needed to be hit over the head with it, John, Robin, Bran, children in a wood, find a dead direwolf at a literal bridge. So, for all these reasons, Martin is telling us that the world is about to change, or at least the world occupied by these particular characters. And that's why the characters in the story, when they find the dead direwolf, view the event as an omen. They see it as a message from the other side, in a sense. And so we, as readers, are justified in doing that as well. And that's all for this week. Next time on Electric Boogaloo. I mean, the dire wolf comes in and and bites. Uh, what's the ugly kid? Oh, Joffrey. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, you think yeah, he's ugly? Somewhere. You think Joffrey's ugly? Oh, he's repulsive. Do you think he has a slappable face? Uh, no, I don't want to touch it. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>